So we have completed the first day of this second month of practice of the two-month retreat. Some of you entering into the silence and some of you fully immersed in the retreat. And tonight I'd like to introduce the theme of the retreat. How's the sound level in the back? Is it too soft or okay? In the back? Up? Good. Thank you. I was leading a teaching several years ago in Los Angeles at UCLA. It was a conference for two or three thousand people, primarily psychotherapists, on psychology East and West, together with Thich Nhat Hanh, Zen master, and some various other teachers. And Thich Nhat Hanh began the conference speaking to these two or three thousand primarily psychologists um, by telling the story of his mother's death. And he said his mother had died when he was a young man, 21 years old, and he was very close to her. So that after she died, he said, I felt this tremendous grief and loss for almost a year. <coughs> and then one night I was sleeping in my little hut, hermitage, in the mountains of the northern part of Vietnam. And... I was awakened from a dream, and in the dream my mother had come to talk to me. And she was just so present, and I could hear her voice as it had always been, and see her long hair flowing down, and she was wearing this beautiful silk dye that the women in Vietnam wear. And she spoke to me as if she was still present and had never died. And I realized that my mother was still with me and that she was still in me and that the idea that she had died was just an idea. And I went out then in the middle of the night and began to walk between the tea plants on the hillside and the moonlight touched my skin. He said, and it felt like my mother's hand as she used to caress my face, so soft and loving and beautiful. And I knew my mother was still with me. And I could see and feel the tea leaves around me as if my mother was also sensing them. And then I knew very deeply that my mother had not died. And that this body that was walking between the tea plants was not just my body, but it was the body of my parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and ancestors. And that together, my mother and I were making footprints in the damp evening soil. It wasn't exactly what the psychologists had come to hear. It kind of dropped the conversation down a couple of octaves to talk about what we will address here as the mystery the mystery of human incarnation, of your 
taking birth in this human body, this whole amazing thing that happened to you, isn't it? And spiritual practice then often begins with questions that come out of this deep level of mystery. For the Buddha, it was after seeing the heavenly messengers of a sick person and an old person and a dead person and a renunciate, it roused the question of um, having seen death for the first time, is there some way of liberating ourselves from the entanglement in death and birth and death? Just what Thich Nhat Hanh was speaking about. What is liberation? For others, it might be the memory from your childhood of hearing choir music in some magnificent church or some fresh summer landscape that was so beautiful it pierced your heart. And what you long for is that sacred music or that beauty or wholeness instead of a fragmented life. For some, it is about suffering physical pain, emotional trauma, stress, sorrow, and the seeking of joy and ease and profound well-being that we know is possible or have heard is possible for us as human beings. For some, it's wanting to love, to love and be loved, or to live fully and be awake in this amazing life and not just live as Pascal and Winnie were talking about by habit. For some, it's freedom. When Aung San Suu Kyi or Nelson Mandela walk out of decades of prison or house arrest with their spirit so free and clear, saying, you can put my body in prison or in arrest, but no one can imprison the spirit. For some, perhaps it's a longing for justice, for dignity and respect in a world of conflict and racism and tribalism and the contracted mistreatment one human being to another, sensing that there's a possibility of living in a completely different way and that that longing for justice. In many ways, these questions, these sacred questions, if you will, are reflections of one other great spiritual question, which is our theme for the retreat, the theme of identity. Who am I? Who are you? In India, there's a saying that when the baby is in the womb, it sings a song, oh, do not let me forget who I really am. And then when the baby's born, it changes the tune to, oh dear, I'm forgetting already. (laughs) Father Greg Boyle, who uh, works down in Los Angeles with gang kids um, and started Homeboy Industries to get jobs for a lot of these kids who are born into, you know, poverty and circumstances where there's very, very little opportunity. Um, And he wrote an kind of very compelling book called Tattoos on the Heart um, and tells his stories of working with these guys and he's sitting in one group that's come for, to, to work with him and there's this kind of guy that walks in full of 
you know, himself, this young man. And he seems unable to shake the scowl etched across his face. You don't want to ask what trauma he'd been through. And I say, hey, what's your name? And he looks back and he says, Sniper. Okay, look, I'd been down this block before. He says, I have a feeling you didn't pop out of your mom and she took one look at your ass and said, Sniper, so come on, dog, what's your name? Gonzalez. He relents a little. Okay, now, son, I know the staff here. This is a juvenile detention or juvenile hall. I know the staff will call you by your last name, but I'm not down with that. Tell me, mijo, what's your mom call you? Cabron. There's even the slightest flicker of innocence in his answer. Oi, no cabe duda. No, son, I'm looking for a birth certificate here. The kid softens. I can tell it's happening. But there's embarrassment and a new found vulnerability. Napoleon, he managed to squeak out pronouncing it in Spanish. Wow, I say, that's a fine, noble, historic name. But I'm almost positive that when your Jafita calls you, she doesn't use the whole nine yardas. Come on, mijito, do you have an apado? What's your mom call you? And then I watch him go to some far distant place, a location he has not visited for some time. His voice, body language, and whole being are taking on a new shape right before my eyes. Sometimes, his voice so quiet, I lean in. Sometimes, when my mom's not mad at me, she calls me Napito. And I watch this kid move, transform from sniper to Gonzales, to Cabron, to Napoleon, to Napito. We all just want to be called by the name our mom uses when she's not pissed off at us. (laughs) I tell the story that many of you have read in the book The Wise Heart about this famous statue in the north of Thailand that was huge and celebrated over many years, but not particularly attractive, this huge, great great clay Buddha. Um, But it was celebrated because it had been there for 800 years and weathered the storms and regime changes and wars and all those things. And every hundred years or so it would crack and um, they would patch it up. But the last time it cracked in the 60s, There were flashlights, and one of the monks said, I'm going to look and see, one of the young monks, I wonder how they made this thing. And inside the crack that came about this glint of gold, and he looked in another crack, and there was a glint of gold. And they looked further, and they discovered that underneath this great, huge clay edifice was the largest and, in many ways, most elegant, golden image of Buddha that had ever been cast in Thailand or Southeast Asia. And it had been covered over by the clay to protect it for all those centuries from the marauding armies and those who would harm it. And we, like that Thai statue, also cover that original innocence, the napito that's in there gets covered by all those layers. So who are you? I like to say when you look in the mirror, you notice you've aged, right? Losing fur at one end, drooping things, wrinkles. You know how it happens, right? 
Um, but the weird thing is, commonly, is that you don't necessarily feel older. You know that? That feeling? And that's because it's only your body that's aged. And in the moment of looking in the mirror, you become the witness to this physical incarnation. Say, well, hmm, drooping a little bit or getting wrinkled there, losing its fur, whatever it is. Um, But there's also a knowing that that's just the body. That's not who you are. You are the awareness that's taking stock, that's looking and saying, getting a little older, this vehicle, isn't it? I mean, how did you get in there? This weird thing with wiggly things on the end with little remnants of claws, right? And a vestigial tail you got back there. And the hole at one end into which you stuff dead plants and animals regularly and glug them down through the tube, right? And these weird protuberances, mine quite large, you know, that stick out to collect the vibrations that people make by shaping their lips and mouth to say Golden Gate Bridge. And you can picture it. It's bizarre, the incarnation. It's really weird. It is. And there you are in it, right? So when Anathapindika, who was one of the great supporters of and most famous of the among the most famous of the lay disciples of the Buddha, lay dying, very, very sick. The Buddha sent his wisest disciple, Sariputta, to be with Anattapindika. And he went to talk to Anattapindika and he said, how's it going? Are you feeling any better, my friend? And Anattapindika said, no, venerable, I'm not getting well. My painful feelings are increasing, not subsiding, just as if a strong man were splitting my head open with a sharp sword and violent winds were to cut through my head and a, a tough leather strap around my head as a headband and a butcher were to carve up the belly of a beast. So I am feeling and I'm not doing well, he said. <laughs> you see, if you think you had a hard meditation today, right? This is Anattapindika. And then Sariputta says to Anattapindika, then, householder, because he's not a monk, you should train yourself thus. I will not cling to the eye and sights. I will not cling to the ear and sounds, to the nose and smells, to the tongue and taste, to the body and touches, to the mind and thoughts and feelings and consciousness, not to earth, air, nor fire and water will I cling. I will not cling to this world nor any world beyond it. I will not be dependent on the changing conditions. Thus you should train yourself. And Anattapindika begins to do that and his symptoms subside. He's about to die, so it's not like it makes him all better. But he feels better because he's not entangled in all that. And he says, I am not foundering. I am not sinking. I've long awaited for the Blessed One to teach me, but I've I've heard so many teachings, I've never heard this deep teaching. And Sariputta says, well, this is usually reserved for those who are ordained in the order of monks and nuns. And Anattapindika says, then please ask the Blessed One my last wishes that such teachings, such deep teachings of who we are and who we are not should be given to all those who are followers and not just the monastic order. So this is the question, who are you? 
And the practices that we do here, the most central and profound practices of mindfulness, which we'll also call loving awareness, and of compassion and metta, invite a shift of identity, an extraordinary shift of identity from what's called the small sense of self, the sense of separation. Sometimes it's called the body of fear. The identification with history and trauma and unworthiness and all that stuff that, as I sometimes say, we are quite loyal to our suffering. You know that? All that stuff that we take ourselves to be from our history and conditioning to shift from that and to hear the words of the texts that begin, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember who you really are. Remember your true nature, your Buddha nature, your secret beauty. Ramdas was just visiting. Trudy and I were both in Hawaii um, and spent some time with Ramdas. And he was talking, as he loves to do, about his guru and the things that had really changed his life and how much love he felt being in the presence of his guru. He said that alone changed his life. There's something in India called the glance of mercy when a teacher or a guru or someone looks at you with so much love all the things that you denied were possible in yourself and you're just seen with so much love that it changes everything. So Ramdas talked about how after being with his guru for the first year, two, three years of his training and practice and all the things that he'd done as an ascetic, you know, he'd fasted and did his mantra and did his meditation and did his pujas and did all the inner trainings and so forth. He was going to go back to America and his guru said, now you should teach, you should pass it on. And he said, I, I feel so unworthy. He said, I, I feel there's so much unfinished in my practice and there's so many imperfections. How could I possibly teach what's so beautiful with this imperfect vehicle? And his guru got up off the little seat where he sat in his blanket and he walked very slowly, took like five minutes to walk around Ramdas and peered like underneath in the middle, top, down the collar, and then he walked around a little further. And he just looked at him all around, as you know, closely as he could, and then he sat back down and looked him in the eye and said, I see no imperfections. <laughs> and to be seen that way, to shift from the identification with unworthiness and the body of fear and the small sense of self to your fundamental nobility and and beauty and dignity is what is invited to you through the practice that we do. Now in saying this, I don't mean that you make the end run, the spiritual bypass around your loneliness and body pain and grief and fear and aging and all that stuff that makes you human. Because you've already tried that, right? And it didn't work terribly well. So 
actually what you're invited to discover is that loving awareness, the mindfulness, and the fearlessness of loving awareness allows you to be present with your loneliness and grief and pain and confusion and humanity in a liberated way. Hafiz writes, don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deeply. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Or the Native American, the Lakota Sioux, valued grief so much they said it brought a person closer to the gods. When they'd suffered a great loss, other people would go to those who were grieving. They were considered the most wakan, the most holy. And they would ask them, because their prayers were considered to be especially powerful, will you also pray for me? Or the pains, where Annie Morrow Lindbergh wrote about sitting with pain. And she said, it's not that you run from a pain, and it's not that you resist the pain, but in the end, it's as if your body becomes the temple or, you, or the altar, and you put your pain and your body on the altar of love and hold it in that way. And that's what releases you. So that the practice that we're doing asks that you touch your insecurity, your fears, your loneliness, your pains, not with the idea to get rid of them or fix them or fix yourself, but with a an awareness, a loving awareness that is tender, spacious, respectful, that says, yes, this is humanity. Especially in this time of managed care, more emphasis seems to be placed upon the quick amelioration of symptoms, short-term work, and privatized profit-making clinics than upon the lovely and mysterious alchemy that comprises the healing cords between and within human beings, the cords that soothe our terrors and help us to be whole. And so your attention is a healing attention as well. It's an invitation not to bypass experience. And yet, as you sit, as you continue to practice for these many weeks, those of you who have or those joining, as you quiet the mind and open the heart, you discover that the pains and grief and separation and longing and loneliness is not who you really are. That who you are is magnificent and free and open, you'll see. Identity is a really strange thing, you know. I mean, among the very many wonders and mysteries, the mystery of taking things to be self is actually, it's, it's wild, Sakaya Ditti. I mean, here, if I hold my hand up, 
And then I take this hand and I decide I'm going to feel this one. Oh, the skin on the back is a little dry. I need to put some skin cream on there. And this nail on the fourth finger needs to be clipped. It's a little long and ragged and, you know, the palm is it's a little bit moist. Um, so here I am. I'm Jack in this hand. And this is the object of my my experience that I'm kind of feeling, you know, as if it was something different, right? But then here's the wild thing. I can switch. Now this is Jack. Uh, this palm isn't quite as moist as that one. Skin even drier on this side. Nails feel a little better. And so now I'm here, and this is the object of experience. Isn't that bizarre? That you can put your identity in different places. This is my body or my feelings. The problem is that that's your feelings for the moment, you know. Ten minutes later, you might be feeling something else. But we identify with things. We identify with my body, my feelings, my family, my gender, my tribe, my orientation, my age, my, you know, nation, my people, whatever it happens to be, my role. I'm a healer or a first responder or a teacher. Or I'm a soldier, a police, policewoman. Okay, you have a job. You know, you're a cop. Good thing. I had a phone call when I was doing um, uh, a call-in radio show in San Francisco, and there was this guy who called in, and he said, I'm a, um, I'm a policeman on the streets of San Francisco, and I'm also a Buddhist, so I really don't like to use violence at all. Is that okay? Right? I said, yeah. Could we have more of you? Right? You know, order up. But anyway, but if you're a policeman or a policewoman, you know, and you, you've got your role that you have to do on the streets. If you go home to your six-year-old kid or to your spouse, you know, and still wear your gun and act like the policeman or policewoman, it's not going to be a very good marriage or a very good parenting. It's just an identity for a time, just a role. And in modern society, of course, they want you to take the identity of the consumer, right? This is from Julia Child. She writes, A great deal of unnecessary kitchen equipment is bought by people who enter the department store looking for men's underwear, right? (laughs) And, you know, the culture is saying, who you are is what you buy and own, right? Or the culture, you know, reinforces the notion of yourself as being a, smart person or a foolish person. Maybe you think meditation will make you smarter, but then Zen Master Ryokan, my favorite line, he's the great Japanese Zen poet, he says, last year a foolish monk, this year no change. (laughs) Just, you know, so you know where you're headed, right? Or the study that was done where a group of Asian American women, it was done, I think, at Harvard, but I'm not sure, were um, uh, given a test on mathematical ability. And the group was divided so that one half of the group, as they went into the test, was told just kind of offhand that um, this is a math test, and women don't tend to do all that well on math tests, but, you know, do your best. 
second half of the group randomly was told, this is a math test, and um, Asian people tend to do, or, you know, Asian origin people tend to do really well in math, you know, so do your best. At the end of the test, as you would expect, there was a, a very large differential in the scores of the people who identified as women who can't do math, those very same people, or the ones who identified as, oh, Asian women, we, we're really good at math. What you believe about yourself and what you take as an identity starts to determine what your life is and how it goes. Now, what the Buddha offers to you and to us is liberation, the sure heart's release, an invitation to honor your humanity, honor your tribe and gender and orientation and race. All those things have their value, but to know that it's not who you really are. To remember, O nobly born, your Buddha nature, your true nature, so that my friend, my favorite kindergarten teacher, Peggy, um, has a kindergarten that's in the flight pattern of uh, one of the Air Force bases here in California. And 10 years ago or so, in preparation for the Iraq war, there were all these transport planes taking off um, to stage equipment for that particular war, one among you know, the long series of wars we've been doing, having, creating. Um, Sorry to say. Um, Anyway, the kids were out in the yard, um, and this transport planes, military planes don't have the same sound requirements, so it was really loud and low, and it was scary, and they came running in. said, Peggy, Peggy, what's that? And she said, well, that's a military transport plane. Have you heard um, that there's a war that may be coming? And these are five-year-olds. They said, oh, yeah, you know, their parents talk about it. They watch the news. They're interested in the world. And where is that war going to happen? Oh, one of the kids said, Iraq, is that right, Iraq? Yeah, yeah. What do you think is on that plane, Peggy? Bombs, probably. You know, guns, maybe. Soldiers, yeah. All those things. And then one little boy said, well, are there kids there in Iraq like us? And Peggy said, yes, there are, lots of them. And he said, well, they must not know that. They must not know that, or they wouldn't be sending bombs there. We have to let them know. And so they took this huge roll of butcher paper and went out in the yard in the break and made this giant picture of a child and then spelled out a reg Peggy, helped them learn how to spell a rack and spell big enough so that the pilots could see it when they flew over so that they would know that there were children there and not to send bombs. To remember that this is in you, that this was born in you. I mean, in the University of Chicago, the research that's been done by Peggy Mason um, with laboratory rats, there was a rat that was kind of imprisoned in a tight little cage and another one that had a lever to let the imprisoned rat out without any reward, but it was squeaking and so forth. And the rat figured out how to let it out. It would let it out even without getting any reward. And then they'd started to give the free rat before it was able to let the other rat out, chocolate chips. And if I were a rat anyway, I'd be very happy about that. I like chocolate chips. 
And the rats would eat the chocolate chips, but they would save one or two and then let the other rat out so that it too could share the chocolate chips. Just in case you're sitting here thinking, well, not me. You know, come on. It is in you. It was born in you, you know, in the children in Peggy's kindergarten and in every single being. And yes, it gets covered over by the clay, but the nobility and dignity of your fundamental true nature um, can't be taken from you. So then, when you practice, you can begin to feel the clay layers drop away, or you can sense yourself tending with loving awareness this life, and the qualities of beauty, dignity, integrity, and so forth, they begin to flower, they get watered. But how does this shift happen? My teacher, Ajahn Chah, talked about having spent years in the jungle uh, traveling and um, living in caves and doing all kinds of austerities and practices and developing jhana samadhi and 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 um, various deep meditation states. And then he went to see the greatest meditation master of the forest tradition, this man, Ajahn Man, and launched into, after they paid his respects and so forth, said, I need to tell you about my practice and you can help me. Told him about all these experiences. Ajahn Man sit, sat quietly and listened and said, that's nice, but you've missed the point. I mean, amazing, dissolve the body into light, jhana, samadhi, all this stuff. That's nice, but you've missed the point. He said, because those are just changing experiences. Those are changing conditions, temporary, impermanent, arise due to certain causes and disappear. But the real question is, to whom do they happen? He said, instead of being lost in the screen, you know, you go to the movies and there's a comedy or a romance or a documentary or a war movie or science fiction or, you know, vampires or whatever you're into, right? You go and see it. And for a while, you're re- moments, you're really into it. And then it's like somebody chews their popcorn a little loud or rustles in the seat and you go, oh yeah, movie. There's the light coming from the projector. And so Ajahn Man said... It's not the experiences on the screen that matters, but become the one who knows. Siki Bhutto, the witness to the truth of things. Become the awareness itself. And then you enter the gate of liberation. That awareness becomes the witnessing of experience that is timeless, unborn, ever-present, And you know it in a moment of mindfulness. You can be really caught in something and then there'll come this moment, wow, really caught in that one, wasn't I? You know that moment? And it's as if the balloon pops, the spell is dispelled. All of a sudden you realize, oh, that was fear, that was confusion, that was anger, that was hurt, that was some story. Really identified with that one, wasn't I? And there's this enormous spacious relief of mindfulness. And it doesn't mean your personality goes away. You should be so lucky, (laughs) right? It's more that you see things from this universal perspective and you can take your personal life in a much lighter and more gracious way. Mary Oliver writes, 
poem called Winter and the Nuthatch, which they do at our center in Massachusetts at IMS. People will stand out in the back in the snow with seeds in their hand for the birds to come very patiently. Once or twice, and maybe again, who knows, the timid nuthatch will come to me if I stand still long enough with something good to eat in my hand. The first time he did it, he landed smack on his belly as though so frightened his legs wouldn't cooperate. The next time he was bolder, he became wild about the walnuts. But there was a morning I came late, and guess what? The nuthatch was flying into a stranger's hand. To speak plainly, I felt betrayed. I wanted to say, Mr., that nuthatch and I have a relationship. It took hours of standing in the snow before he would drop from the tree and trust my fingers. But I didn't say anything. Nobody owns the sky or the trees. Nobody owns the hearts of birds. Still, being human and partial, therefore, to my own success, though not resentful of others fashioning theirs, I'll come tomorrow, I believe, quite early. And you hear the wisdom in this, you know. Nobody owns the sky or trees. Nobody owns the hearts of birds. We can't possess, and yet still, I'll come tomorrow, I believe, quite early. And so the point is that you don't get rid of yourself. Good luck. But that instead, if you practice with compassion and loving kindness and care and non-judging, these are the things we'll emphasize a lot in this retreat, with loving awareness, you can hold this incarnation without being trapped and lost in it. And gradually, as you do, you find yourself able to release the entanglement with the hindrances of doubt and restlessness and grasping and fear and so forth, or the fetters, all those things that are troublesome. It's not that they're not there, but they don't entangle you in the same way. And what starts to then blossom quite naturally, your identity shifts. And the factors of enlightenment, of joy, calm, steadiness, concentration, equanimity, the jhana factors of rapture and Uh, one-pointedness and deep happiness, they start to naturally bubble up in you and you enter periods at times where these qualities become more what flavors consciousness itself. And the paramitas, the qualities of perfections that we might talk about of patience and truthfulness and dedication and integrity and kindness and generosity, all those things that are your Buddha nature that are native to you as you practice loving awareness over and over, those start to flower because you're here and you're not lost and not entangled in things. And you tend them and water them and dwell in them and invite them. And don't worry if they're, you know, you don't have to worry about getting attached to them. Enjoy them. They become the basis for yet, they're the factors of enlightenment for yet deepening wisdom in you. And as your mind is quieter, 
and you pay attention from a stiller place, less caught, the experiences that you have, all the experiences that Ajahn Chah described, the good ones and the terrible ones, because he had a lot of very, very difficult and bad experiences too, they show themselves to be more and more empty. Empty means that they don't last, they're insubstantial in some profound way. And the experience of the solidity of the world, this is me, that's them, starts to dissolve. And it can be experienced all kinds of ways. Sometimes, Alice Walker writes, one day I was sitting there like a motherless child, which I was, and it came to me, that feeling of being a part of everything. And I knew if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed and cried and run all around the house. When it happens, you just can't miss it. And many of you know that in some way. You can be on a retreat and go out and look at a tree and all of a sudden it's not just your tree that you love and have been coming and visiting, but it's like family. The sense of identity shifts and changes and opens. Or sometimes in the emptiness, the emptying of yourself, which is really emptying of your self-preoccupation with the quieting of the mind and the opening of the heart. Then what happens, as the Buddha described it, is that life shows itself as it is not your thinking about it, but the direct experience of life as a river. From the Anguttara Nikaya, It seems that although we thought ourselves permanent, we are not. Although we thought ourselves settled, we are not. Although we thought we would last forever, we will not. How's that for some straight talk? And so what is this human incarnation? One of the Buddha's favorite descriptions was this incarnation is a changing river. You come into this incarnation, here you get this body, and it's a river of body experiences of sounds and sights and tastes and smells and physical sensations. And as the meditation gets quieter and deeper, instead of the idea of hand or breath or arm or body or or whatever it is, you actually feel it's made up of a thousand little sensations and elements of hot and cool and hard and soft and Oh, the more deeply you pay attention to the body, instead of being a fixed body, it is a river of changing sensations. Or you pay attention to the second of the five rivers, the river of feelings. And the feelings include pleasant, neutral, unpleasant feelings. So I have this list of 500 feelings as well. Affectionate, ambivalent, aggressive, anguished, Ambitious, angry, amused, amorous, aversive, antagonistic, antsy, apathetic, apoplectic, anxious, appreciative, argumentative, adamant, addled, amazed, blissful, bonkers, broken-hearted, bored, bad, belligerent, calm, cheerful, claustrophobic, compassionate, concentrated, crestfallen, curious, concerned, on and on, hundreds of them. There's a river of feelings in you. Have you noticed? You tend to identify and take them so seriously. And IMS, again, 
woman came who couldn't, just hated walking meditation, couldn't get anywhere with it. I said, walk slower, close your eyes for a few steps, walk backward a little bit, walk outside, walk inside. Hated it. Nothing, nothing good. Finally, I said, all right, there's one more instruction. Don't sit and just walk and see what happens. Whole day, nothing but walking. She negotiated, half day, okay. So then she wrote, Dear Jack, long walking meditation all morning, assignment completed, thank you. Now I can meditate while walking. I thought I might discover why I've been so resistant, but circumstances taught me more than that. I chose to walk in the lower annex because it's small, beautiful, and usually quiet. Today, however, it was noisy as hell. There was some guy in there walking like the little engine that could, wearing noisy boots. Well, thought I, surely he'll be gone when the walking period ends. No such luck. This madman paced and pounded his way through an hour and a half nonstop, except when he stopped to drink or remove a noisy layer of clothing. I tried metta. Surely he must have a lot of pain to be so driven. Then I realized that I wanted to kill the SOB. I stood there and noticed hating, hating. Then I stood in the middle of the room and just cried. Finally, I got to the point where I realized that whatever problem he had was his and not mine. And after that, I got quiet and he became just sound. And so I walked and breathed and he paced and pounded and pretty soon it was all the same to me. His noise, my breath, the movement of my body. And after an hour and a half, he left. And then it was incredibly quiet, which was different, but not as much better as I would have expected, mostly just different. This paying attention stuff is really amazing. Thank you for suggesting it. (laughs) So the river of sensations, the river of feelings, and you take them so real, and then there they are, they're gone. The river of perceptions. This person is like that, and that bird is like that, and the, you know, the dining room is like that, and all the ways that we remember and think of our memory and recognize and so forth, and all the perceptions that we carry about things. And they're very fixed in our attachment. When my daughter Cindy was in first grade, we took a trip to California to visit my family. While we were there, she lost a tooth. She ran into the kitchen to show me and asked if the tooth fairy could fly this far. My mom shot me a look of concern and later suggested that by indulging such fantasies, I was teaching my child not to trust adults. Was Cindy going to feel betrayal when I pointed out the truth and she found, or she found it out from someone else? Did I want to do that to my child? I reminded my mother she didn't have a, seemed to have a problem with the tooth fairy when I was little, but the next time Cindy lost a tooth, she chattered with excitement as I put her to bed. How does the tooth fairy get in, she asked. Through the window, I explained. Shouldn't we unlock it then? Oh, I do that right before I go to bed, I said. Why does the tooth fairy want everybody's teeth, she asked. (laughs) I took a deep breath and considered my mother's advice. Cindy would soon find out the truth anyway. So I told my inquisitive seven-year-old daughter that, in fact, I 
was the tooth fairy. (laughs) She cried hard. I apologized and explained that she was getting to an age at which it was more important for me to be honest with her than to play imaginary games. We cuddled for a while and she stopped crying. She had one last question. What do you wear? (laughs) We hold on to our perceptions about people, you know, in positive ways and in negative ways and all the kinds of condition we have. This person looks that way or something. It's crazy. So you see the river of perceptions, but you don't have to identify. And then you see, oh my gosh, the river of thoughts. Have you noticed? One friend of mine said on the first retreat, he, he texted to a, to a friend, you know, how it was, he wasn't going to call, but he decided he would send a text how it was going. He said, help, I'm locked in a phone booth with a lunatic. <laughs> Which, of course, was himself, right? Or it's like uh, Annie Lamott saying, my mind is like a bad neighborhood, I try not to go there alone, Right? And the mind has this river of thoughts, pictures, images, and so forth. And you see that's what the mind does. And then there's the river of consciousness, the knowing faculty that sees and knows sight, sound, taste, smells, and thoughts, and so forth. But all of them selfless. In the Time magazine cover story on neuroscience, the pull quote from the neuroscientists After more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have long since concluded that there's no conceivable place for a self to be located in the physical brain, and it simply does not exist. So as you get quiet, you see your experience as a river, as the Buddha said in the Anguttara. You thought it was settled, and it's not. It's impermanent, it's ungraspable. The more you hold, the more you get rope burn, because it changes anyway, the more you suffer. But instead, through loving awareness, there opens resiliency, strength, joy, flexibility, pliancy, wisdom, graciousness, love, the qualities that allow the wisdom of impermanence to be known. To live in the river of change, resting as what Ajahn Cha called the one who knows, resting in the knowing, saying, oh yes, this too is part of humanity. And there grows a greater and greater sense of freedom. Alan Watts says, the art of living is neither careless drifting on the one hand, nor fearful clinging on the other, and consists of being sensitive to each moment, regarding it as utterly new and unique, and having the mind and heart open, and truly receptive. And you discover that it's possible to live in the reality of the present without the clinging and the, yes, there is all the personality and all the rivers are there, but that's not who you are. You become the one who knows. You become the Buddha herself, the witnessing of all things, the graciousness, the flexibility, the emptiness and the fullness And there grows in this a profound trust. As you practice more and more, there grows a deep trust in being itself. A deep trust in awareness and in the great heart of compassion that was born in you and can hold this whole world.
Dina Metzger, the poet, writes, Give me everything mangled and bruised, and I will make a light of it to make you weep. And we will have rain, and we will begin again. No matter how hard it gets at certain moments, or difficult, or lost, you feel, that is not the end of the story. O nobly born, O you who are the daughters and sons of the awakened ones. The Buddha said, if it were not possible for you to awaken, I wouldn't teach you these practices, but just because it's possible for you, I offer, as I have awakened, I offer these practices and trainings that you too might join me in this awakening. So your time here asks for your sincerity and surrender as Winnie and Pascal talked about, your love, your common sense, your steadiness, and all the rest of it will flower, the shift of identity from the small sense of self starts to open the way the clouds open and the heart starts to free itself in its own season, it will. And you remember who you really are and it's beautiful. So let's sit for a moment. It's an honor to practice together. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.